Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality, and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com, which is spelled S-U-D-I-O Sweden.com, and simply put in the code DTD when purchasing a pair of headphones. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Thank you for being with me. This is the TR episode of 10 American Presidents. I am Royfield Brown. Today we have the always excellent David Petrucia as our narrator. And I think you'll agree with me that he does a sterling job in fleshing out, explaining and illuminating the life of Theodore Roosevelt. Now this show spans the start of recorded sound. So what I have done is included some very early sound recordings to put you right back into the early part of the 20th century. Now, before we start the show, a little bit of housekeeping. There is a Facebook group, 10 American Presidents. Go on to Facebook and uh, join the group. Um, we have some six, 700 people there who are incredibly passionate about American presidential history, but also like a little bit of fun as well. So why don't you go onto Facebook and join the group? Also, we do have a presence on Twitter, though I am a sporadic tweeter. And you can find us on Twitter where we are 10USP. So that is the numbers 1 and 0 USP. One of the really fun things about doing these shows is that I go out onto the Facebook group and ask the listeners, would they like to do a reading from a newspaper? And so on this episode, we have readings from James R. Early, Lonnie Bihar, Zana Ace, David Baldwin, Carrie Payne Linden and Tiffany Jones Welsh. Thank you for your contributions to this show. If you would like to uh, donate, you can do that via Patreon. 
and we have some new patrons which I'm going to quickly read out. Elizabeth O'Connell, Frank Tippin, Daniel Kostelek, Dan Hackett, Don Collins, Matthew Lennon, Catherine White, Vasev Swaminathan, Keir Patterson, Robbie Monser, Thomas Wolverton, John Hornsby, Ali, Eric O'Meyer, and Andrea Patterson. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast. If you'd like to join them, go over to patreon.com and donate. Lastly, um, it's not all about begging for money, but if you would like to help us, you can go onto Apple Podcasts or a podcatcher of your choice and write us a review. On with the show. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. White America and Latino America and Asian America, there's the United States of America. When one is traveling in the foothills of a mountain range, it is difficult to appreciate the heights and grandeur of the peak. It is only at a distance that we are able to judge clearly a relative height and pick out the main peaks of the range. So it is with great men, their lives and work. We may appreciate in a way their greatness while living, but the true measure of it comes to us only with time. Theodore Roosevelt was the most dominating and inspiring figure in American life since Abraham Lincoln. Dominating and inspiring because he stood for the square deal, because his sympathy was as broad as the world, limited neither by race nor creed. Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., October 27, 1858, January 6, 1919, was an American statesman, author, explorer, soldier, and naturalist who served as the 26th president of the United States from 1901 to 1909. He also served as the 25th vice president of the United States from March to September 1901 and as the 33rd governor of New York from 1899 to 1900. Theodore Roosevelt is actually born before the American Civil War. Not much before it, but he's young enough where his father is susceptible to the first American draft. He does not go and that is, a, I think, a point of discomfort to Theodore Roosevelt and something he must work against uh, for the rest of his life. Uh, he must sort of uh, restore the family honor in a very martial, warlike sort of way. And his mother is a Southerner. The American Civil War is a war of brother against brother and in-law against in-law. And one of the reasons why Theodore Roosevelt's father does not go on to fight in the Civil War is he might be fighting against his own in-laws. Theodore Roosevelt recalls or is certainly told that when he is a small child, his two uncles come and visit the family. They had fought in the Confederate Navy during the war. So it was a very mixed up situation in the country, in the Roosevelt family. 
And he is an eyewitness to history in those early days. He witnesses the funeral cortege of Abraham Lincoln passing by his grandfather's home. And the photography of the time captures that. And you can see a couple of little figures, Theodore Roosevelt and his sister, watching from an upper story window. There's a great issue as to whether Theodore Roosevelt will survive to adulthood. A lot of children don't in that era. And he suffers from asthma. He's really never grows into a big adult, maybe a bit of an overweight adult, but he's only about maybe five foot eight, even for the time that's not a very big person. And he's scrawny, he's sickly, he has great trouble breathing. He establishes a bond, particularly with his father. His father will get him through the night by cradling him in his arms, reassuring him that things are going to be all right. And his father does much more than that. At some point he says, Okay, Theodore, you've been a sick little boy. But you've got to transcend that. You've got to build yourself up. You're a smart kid. We know that. But you've also got to be strong. You've got to work on building that body up so that it can carry that great intellect forward, that great will. And this is this is what happens with Theodore Roosevelt. He moves on from being uh, the prototypical, sickly, uh, endangered child to the strenuous life, the strenuous adult and president of the United States of America. So he's able to become an explorer and a naturalist and a boxer and all sorts of a physically active person, which will startle all observers in the years to come. The Roosevelts are an old Dutch family. They have many branches. There are the what will become the Oyster Bay Roosevelts, although they, when Theodore is born, they are the New York City Roosevelts. Oyster Bay is originally their summer home. He falls in love with the area and moves out there to a, a hill, Sagamore Hill. Uh, as it's ultimately called, overlooking the Long Island Sound. But there's another branch of the Roosevelt family. Theodore Roosevelt's family is Republican. The other branch is Democrat. And there is a James Roosevelt who has a sort of baronial home, not on Long Island, but to the north of New York City um, at Hyde Park in Dutchess County. And his son, which is conceived at a very old age for, for James Roosevelt by his second wife, is going to become Franklin D. Roosevelt. They are not very close relatives in terms of blood. Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt are only about fifth or sixth cousins, but they are close in terms of the relationships between the families. And they are close in a, in a very other, very meaningful way. Theodore Roosevelt's younger brother, Elliot, is not a model citizen. He's a drunk. He's a drug addict. He's rather dissolute. Theodore Roosevelt is a great Victorian uh, with a sense of Victorian sexual morality. His brother is, shall we say, not 
But his brother is the father of a young daughter named Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, better known as Eleanor Roosevelt. And she, at the beginning of this century, is going to marry Franklin Delano Roosevelt and is going to be given away because her father is now deceased by the president of the United States of America, one Theodore Roosevelt. By mid-19th century, New York City, which still does not include Brooklyn, is nonetheless the major city, the great hustle and bustle capital of the United States of America. And it becomes more and more so as those decades intervene. Immigration flows into the city. It becomes a great banking and commercial capital. And it's also noted for rather spectacular municipal corruption. Theodore Roosevelt is interested in becoming part of the ruling class of America, and his associates, his equals in the upper strata of Manhattan society, say, why do you want to go into politics? Why do you want to mingle with these ruffians, with these saloon keepers, with these, with these crooks of both the Tammany Democratic machine and the people who infest the local Republican machines? And Theodore Roosevelt says, they are the ones who rule. I'm not going to be ruled by them. I am going to be among the ruling class. And he's going to get his, shall we say, fingers dirty in very local political campaigns at first for the New York State Assembly. In 1881, Theodore Roosevelt is elected to the New York State Assembly. He wins with organization support and he goes to Albany as a representative of the Republican Party and of his respective assembly district. Now, when he gets to Albany, the fun really begins. He's 23 years old, and he gives a bunch of speeches which only a 23-year-old can give, rather bombastic and self-righteous. He's also, as we noted earlier, by now a very physical specimen, and he will distinguish himself by punching out some of his legislative colleagues. There is an assemblyman from 21st Street in Manhattan named James J. Costello, who he he floors. He has some choice words to say about his uh, not only his Republican colleagues, but particularly about his Irish Catholic Democrat colleagues, which would not be termed politically correct nowadays. And with such a record, he naturally is made the Republican minority leader the following year. But he must have rubbed even his fellow Republicans the wrong way uh, rather quickly, because the next year, and these are one-year terms, he is bypassed for the post of Speaker of the Assembly, the actual leader of the Assembly when Republicans gain the majority. And it is at that time when he is an assemblyman that great tragedy strikes theodore roosevelt the great dual tragedy of his wife 
he receives word when he is in Albany that his wife, Alice Lee Roosevelt, is in childbirth and is having great difficulty. He rushes back home to New York City, and there he finds that not only is this difficulty confronting the family, but that his mother, Martha Bullock Roosevelt, has just died. And then his wife dies, and he is crushed, as anyone would be. He writes in his diary words that the light has gone out of his life and puts a gigantic X across that page. He runs not again for the assembly. He moves to North Dakota to again engage in the strenuous life, to become a rancher, to make some money in the emerging beef markets of America. Uh, But that does not go well. He takes significant losses because of a blizzard, but comes back. But what he does is he's able to write about his adventures in the North Dakota and South Dakota Badlands. But he established this, establishes this great mystique, this Easterner who is a Westerner, this aristocrat who is a cowboy of a person who is really greater than life. Theodore Roosevelt's mother and wife have died, but his infant daughter has not. She, like her mother, is named Alice. She's going to become known in history as Princess Alice Roosevelt, but she's just a little baby then. And Theodore Roosevelt, in going off to the Dakota Territory, leaves his daughter in care of one of his sisters. And the relationship is going to be a bit prickly uh, during their life. I think it would be even aside from that, because she is her father's daughter, and she is an incredibly strong-willed person. Uh, When she gets to the White House, she'll be smoking and doing all sorts of things, and uh, um, really a person looking forward into the future of American history, and somewhat of a a, uh, hellion. She has her father's will, but she does not always have his Victorian morality. In fact, she has it hardly at all. America is emerging from being a backwater republic to being an almost imperial nation, certainly imperial in size in population, in manufacturing, in agricultural output. It sees itself as the as the colossus of the world, really. And the rest of the world shares that opinion. It's something new. It's something different. All the energy of technology and growth seem to be coming out of America. We're outpacing the European powers. We're outpacing our motherland of Great Britain. And it's an exciting time for Americans to be alive in. Theodore Roosevelt shares in that excitement. He's uh, He is a bridge between New York City, a great manufacturing, commercial, financial power, and the people of the emerging West. So that unlike any other figure of his time, 
He is he is a truly American figure. And it's a time when America is still very, very sectional. Let's face it, transportation, communication is not exactly wonderful in the 19th century. It's amazingly difficult. It's made great strides with the railroads and all that. But it is not one which is easily connected. New England's culture is very different from the Midwest and the Rocky Mountain states and the Pacific Coast. The South is tried to be a country on its own and in a way uh, still sort of is. It, it, it operates very differently in terms of race relations and in terms of agriculture and in terms of, of just seeing the world differently. The country is split that way. North, South, East, West, agricultural manufacturing. The agricultural manufacturing split manifests itself in large part in the arguments over tariffs. The Democratic Party sees itself as a free trade party. It sees itself as the party which supports tariffs only for revenue, not for protection. The Republican Party is the descendant of Alexander Hamilton's Federalists and of the Whig Party, of Henry Clay and his American plan. And what is that? Uh, philosophy that those three parties share, the Federalists, the Whigs, the Republicans. The Republican Party today is more small government, is more divided government in terms of states' rights and local government. But back then, it's the party of funding national improvements of railroads and of protection of American industry. We're seeing that come to the fore again with Donald Trump and tariffs and protecting American manufacturing. That is the big issue that unites Republicans in the 19th and early 20th century. And Theodore Roosevelt may have some inklings about free trade, but he's not about to upset, upset that Republican apple cart. As I said earlier, communication is still difficult in the 19th century, but newspapers are growing by leaps and bounds. Joseph Pulitzer is a great pioneer in that regard. William Randolph Hearst is going to get into the game late in the 19th century and eventually become the big media dog in the ring, so, so to speak. And both of those are known as yellow journalists. Uh, their tone is not as dignified as some of their predecessors. They go in for stories of scandal and they go in for stories of exposing what the politicians are up to. Sometimes they deal in truth, sometimes in less than truth. And coming around the band in the 20th century is a group of journalists largely writing for magazines such as Ida Tarbell dealing with the Standard Oil operation or Lincoln Steffens dealing with municipal corruption. Eventually, Theodore Roosevelt is going to think they go too far. They're called the muckrakers and they will affect great changes in regard to antitrust law and in regard to, say, meat and food 
safety, health, and inspections with the question of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. So there's a lot going on with the media at that point, and there's a lot going on with the American political situation. The times are changing radically. Theodore Roosevelt is, as we've noted, a very proper Victorian gentleman. And one of the ideas that Victorian gentlemen have is that once married, that's it. That's the end of the game. That remarriage is somehow not quite proper, even after the death of a spouse. But he had once had a very great childhood friend. Her name was Edith. And as they grew into teenagers and to young adults, something happened in their relationship. We don't know what, but they split off. Maybe it was the fact that Theodore Roosevelt had become smitten with Alice Lee. Maybe it wasn't. But in any case, the relationship goes south. Theodore Roosevelt marries Alice Lee, but then Alice Lee, of course, dies. Theodore Roosevelt returns from the West and by accident, or maybe not by accident, comes across his old friend Edith again, who is a great friend of one of Theodore Roosevelt's sisters. They meet at, at the sister's house. And one thing leads to another. And in point of fact, they were made for each other. They marry in 1886. And it may be a function of Theodore Roosevelt's discomfort uh, over breaking his vow that he would never marry again, that they do not marry in the United States of America. They marry in London. They're going to have a rather large family. And where Theodore Roosevelt is impetuous, not much of the fellow in terms of business or with balancing the family books and all that. His wife is the exact opposite. She is the great stable figure of the Roosevelt family, the solid headed person, the person who makes sure that things that have to be done in a family do get done. While he may be off in the out west or running for this office or that office or exploring Africa or the Amazon, she will be the one keeping the home fires burning and making sure that Theodore Roosevelt, who really never grows up, is managed by an adult in the household. In 1886, in London, Theodore Roosevelt and Edith Caro Kermit will marry. America had merely been the first of the European colonies in the Western Hemisphere to break away. It's soon followed by Haiti, and then by one by one, the Spanish colonies in the New World, which had been the most numerous and really among the most prosperous and richest 
but by the end of the 19th century, only two remain, Puerto Rico and Cuba. Cuba has witnessed a tremendous war of independence, which had been going on for a while and exciting the sympathy of the American people. The uh, so-called atrocities of the Spanish general Weiler uh, were reported widely in the American press. And as Americans had uh, rooted for Greek independence in the 1820s and sympathized with various nations of, of Europe wanting to be free, they sympathized with Cuba. Even before the Civil War, America had looked on Cuba with interest. There was a move in the 1850s for us to annex Cuba. The southern slaveholding states had wanted to do that um, and to make it into a southern slaveholding state. Times had certainly changed since then, but American interest remained. In February 1898, the U.S. battleship, the naval battleship, the USS Maine is visiting Havana Harbor. And for whatever reason, it explodes, costing the lives of 260 of the 400-odd American crewmen aboard. Americans are outraged, and the so-called yellow press beats the drums for war. William McKinley doesn't want to go to war, He's not quite sure what caused that explosion, but the press beat the drums for war. America is going to have a war. It's going to turn out to be what history records to be a splendid little war, and it is going to propel Theodore Roosevelt to the White House. Theodore Roosevelt's career is not over when he leaves the New York State Assembly. It's merely interrupted and he will embark on a few things which may or may not for the average person lead to the presidency of the United States but for him that path seems to be like an escalator on the way up he runs for mayor at one point and gets clobbered barely finishes second uh, in a three-person race. It's kind of humiliating to him, and he's he's rather bummed out by the experience. But he goes on to be a civil service commissioner in Washington under President Benjamin Harrison, and he has to battle with the uh, people on the opposite side of the political spectrum who really do want to continue the patronage system. In Washington at that time, it's largely administered through the post office department. Theodore Roosevelt is going to make sure that these postmasters and mistresses have some sort of a level of competence besides an ability to get the vote out for the Republican Party. He does such a good job in this that President Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, keeps him on. He goes to New York City and is a police commissioner and reforms that department. He's very much concerned that the people serving under him, the officers on the beat, 
are not just merely not corrupt, but are physically able to do the job. When he looks into the situation, he sees that a lot of these guys don't know how to shoot a gun. They are woefully out of shape. They can't chase a robber down the street. They can barely walk the beat. And he determines to change that. He basically founds the New York City Police Academy, which is the model for all police academies in the United States of America. Philadelphia Inquirer, 8th of June, 1895, Saturday. At midnight, Commissioner Roosevelt started on his patrol down from 42nd and 3rd Avenue. He walked down 3rd Avenue to 27th Street without finding a single policeman. Then he started back and went over the same ground. At 42nd Street and 3rd Avenue, the commissioner came upon roundsman Patrick White and patrolman James Meegan and Patrick Mahoney, standing in a group on the corner laughing and joking and having a fine time together generally. They were all directly in front of a liquor saloon. "'What are you men doing here?' asked Mr. Roosevelt, standing in front of the group. "'What is your business?' answered Roundsman White with a scowl. "'Move on now or I'll pull you in,' put in Megan. "'Yes, pull him in on general principles. He's suspicious-looking, anyhow,' added Mahoney. As he reached for the commissioner, "'I am Police Commissioner Roosevelt,' said the commissioner, "'and you men are not attending to your duty.' The men were all broken up and got away in a hurry, but not before being ordered to report at headquarters in the morning. But he is a reformer, and the people who are not reformers in New York City want to get him out of town pretty quick. And he does get out of town because he has campaigned for William McKinley in the 1896 election against William Jennings Bryan and is rewarded by being named Assistant Secretary of the Navy. This is a great position to be in for Theodore Roosevelt. It gets him back into Washington, where he is going to meet all sorts of people who will be useful to him later on. Already he has met people like Senator Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts and General Leonard Wood, who is not quite a general yet, but who is going to be a great ally to him in the Spanish-American War and in the run-up to World War I in the preparedness battle. But McKinley's Secretary of the Navy is not a particularly energetic person. He's not a particularly well person. Theodore Roosevelt can really take the reins of that department. And with war threatening with Spain, he's going to be in a position to move the fleet around to order Admiral Dewey out of Hong Kong's harbor to be prepared to seize Manila and to smash the Spanish fleet there and to help end the war very quickly. But he's going to be getting out of town to fight in that war personally. Havana, February 16. At a quarter of 10 o'clock last evening, a terrible explosion took place on board the United States battleship Maine in Havana Harbor. Many were killed or wounded all of the boats of the Spanish cruiser Alfonso XII 
assisted in rescuing the dead and injured. As yet, the cause of the explosion is not apparent. The wounded sailors of the Maine are unable to explain it. It is believed that the cruiser is totally destroyed. Being the Westerner, being the fellow who rode the range in the Dakota Badlands, Hila Roosevelt forms a group called the Rough Riders. It's made up of cowboys and Eastern college boys and all sorts of people, a polyglot regiment. He's going to train in Florida to prepare for the fight in Cuba to free that Spanish colony. After all, it was in Havana Harbor with the sinking of the battleship Maine that the whole war had been ignited. But the American army is not exactly prepared for war. But when he gets to Cuba, the Rough Riders don't do much riding at all. Their horses have never really made it to Cuba and they become really an infantry regiment uh, charging up San Juan Hill defeating the Spaniards, seizing uh, Santiago. So the war is over very quickly. So quickly, in fact, that in 1898, he's able to return home. He lands in Long Island. And before long, the New York State Republican Party comes a calling on him. They need a candidate to run for governor of the state of New York. They have the governorship already. But there are scandals in the Erie Canal and their ability to retain that job, a very powerful and important job nationwide because New York State is the biggest, most populous, richest state in the country. They need a candidate who can turn attention away from their scandals. Theodore Roosevelt is that candidate. They nominate him, he campaigns with a bunch of his old Rough Rider friends, and he's elected. The Elizabethville Echo, the 10th of November, 1898. Roosevelt wins in New York State. By plurality of 20,000 Republican votes, Colonel Theodore Roosevelt will step into the gubernatorial office of the state of New York. Justice Van Wyck of Brooklyn, his Democratic opponent, received a majority of 80,000 votes in Greater New York which the Rough Rider overcame with his upstate votes. A Robin song by Mr. George W. Johnson for the Columbia Phonograph Company of New York and Paris. I was coming around the corner, I heard some people say, Here comes a dandy dog, here he comes this way. His heel is like a snowplow, his mouth is like a trap. And when he opens it gently, you will see a beautiful gap. And then I learned, <laughs> I got to tell you how to <laughs> and impose upon the patriotic people of this country 
a responsibility and a duty greater than that of any since the Civil War. Then it was a struggle to preserve the government of the United States. Now it is a struggle to preserve the financial honor of the government. Down upon tracks, on the horseback, warming up a senior sister ragtime jockey, smile upon a face. The Spanish-American War has ended quickly. America is going to kind of catch up with the European powers, Germany, the United Kingdom, France. It will obtain possession of Puerto Rico. It will obtain temporary possession of Cuba. And most vexatiously for America, it will end up with the Philippine Islands, a far, far off land, which is in a way necessary towards uh, fueling our Pacific fleet. Uh, if we are going to become a Pacific power, you have to be a Pacific power at both ends of the Pacific. And the Philippines will enable us to do that. But the retention of the Philippines is going to set off a massive debate in American politics uh, regarding imperialism. The movement against retaining the Philippines is called the anti-imperialist movement. A lot of the old Cleveland Democrats are going to speak out very forcefully against that. William Jennings Bryan and the populists will. But the Republican Party under Theodore Roosevelt will be all for such maneuvers and such retention of American power. It is going to lead to an early guerrilla war, though, with American forces presaging Vietnam in a way with the Moro rebels in the Philippines. It's going to be played pretty tough. Uh, but in the end of the day, uh, American power will be established in the Philippines until after World War II, when uh, after VJ Day, Philippine independence will be granted. Presidents and vice presidents don't always get along. But William McKinley and his vice president, a fellow from New Jersey named Garrett Hobart, actually did. They didn't know each other beforehand, but they kind of hit it off and everything was going along well until November 22nd, 1899, when Garrett Hobart dropped dead of a heart attack, quite unexpectedly, particularly to him. Theodore Roosevelt was not sure where his political future lay. He had been put into the governorship by boss Tom Platt and was now sparring regularly with the machine politicians of New York, the Republicans at that point in time, but also not sparring enough to really please the reformers and independents and people like that, the goo-goos, the good government people. So he wasn't quite sure where he was headed, and there was a very good chance that Tom Platt was not going to renominate him. This was the bosses had sufficient power, and there were not primaries back then, where they could just do it, and Theodore Roosevelt would be out in the cold. So the plot thickened, when Platt, who was quite the wily politician, determined that one way to bloodlessly get rid of Theodore Roosevelt, to not hopelessly split the Republican Party of New York State and hand the governor's mansion over to the Democrats, was to kick Theodore Roosevelt upstairs to a completely harmless, worthless position called the vice presidency. William McKinley had a few other people in mind for the vice presidency, but he was not about to force 
his opinions on the party. It was a very different situation then in regards to presidential power and politics. And Tom Platt, with the assistance of the boss of the Pennsylvania Republican Party, a fellow named Matt Quay, determines to put Theodore Roosevelt into the vice presidential slot. Matt Quay doesn't particularly care one way or another about Theodore Roosevelt, but he does care about William McKinley's great friend and mentor, Mark Hanna. He doesn't like him. Mark Hanna does not particularly care for Theodore Roosevelt. So what happens is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Mark Hanna not liking Theodore Roosevelt causes Matt Hanna to like him. And Pennsylvania is an incredibly important cog in Republican politics back then. It is so solidly Republican. New York is on the bubble. It can go either way. Pennsylvania never goes either way. It's the big dog in the party. So when they get to the convention, Tom Platt sort of steps away. And Theodore Roosevelt is doing this dance. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to be vice president. But the longer the process goes on, he goes from no, no, no to no, no, no. And people can read the tea leaves and know that he's playing this game and he's willing to jump into the vice presidency. His wife, Edith, does not particularly want him in the vice presidency. Uh, it would be good to settle down, have a more normal life. And there's a pay cut involved. The governorship pays $10,000 a year and you get a really big house in Albany to live in, which when you have a really big family is not such a bad thing. And you get no housing in Washington and you get paid $8,000 a year. But where's the guarantee that the $10,000 salary in Albany is going to continue. No, there's no guarantee of that. So jump to the guaranteed salary for four years, jump to a national office, and Theodore Roosevelt has a way, whether it's a commissionership of the police in New York or with civil service in Washington or assistant secretary of the Navy, of grabbing the public spotlight. And if anyone can make an interesting job out of the vice presidency, it's him. In 1900, William McKinley is going to continue what he did so successfully in the 1896 campaign, the front porch campaign. People will come to him. And it's even more important for him not to go out on the road when he's president because presidents simply don't do that. Presidential candidates really don't do much of that, but vice presidential candidates can often be the very effective surrogate. And Theodore Roosevelt being so young and so vigorous and so desirous of the spotlight is actually a great vice presidential candidate. He's going to go all over the country, the places where William McKinley will not go. He's going to travel 21,000 miles in that campaign and speak to an estimated 3 million people in the flesh. That's an amazing outreach. And when you appear at a stage play or at a rally before people, you establish a bond with them. They, they sort of feel like they're a, you're a part of them. And that's going to come in really handy for Theodore Roosevelt's later political career. 1900's election is kind of a rerun or a sequel 
a very close sequel to the 1896 election. And both elections pit William McKinley versus William Jennings Bryan, the voice of prairie populism of the discontented Middle West and Far West in 1896. McKinley triumphs fairly easily, and he triumphs with greater ease in 1900. Bryan is able to carry only the southern states, uh, including the border states of Missouri and Kentucky. He also has appeal in the western mountain states, the Rocky Mountain area. So he's going to carry Montana and Idaho and Nevada and Colorado. These are fairly radical areas back then. Right now, they're, they're more or less hotbeds of republicanism and conservatism. But back then, particularly among the miners of the, of the far west, uh, you're going to see a, a radicalism. It's going to help lead to the international workers of the world movement. And this is going to be part of the Democratic strategy for taking back the White House. But it's not going to work in 1900 at all. It's a landslide for McKinley and for Roosevelt. The vice presidency is a really dead end job for people. It has no set functions. He's not even going to attend the cabinet meetings. Uh, and he is certainly not wanted by the Republican establishment. He's there to be buried. Theodore Roosevelt returns to Washington, D.C., continues to cement his ties to people in the Capitol, uh, establishing a, a sort of almost rival power structure to McKinley. But he's, he's pretty well blocked there. And um, all that is going to change when William McKinley goes out to an exposition like a World's Fair in Buffalo, New York. And he has a receiving line. In a way, presidents were more accessible back then. They may not have been campaigning as much, but one could go to the White House and shake the president's hand and you could form a big line at one of these events. And, and the president might literally shake thousands of hands in a single day. And so that's William McKinley's strategy that day. In line is a, an immigrant from Eastern Europe from an area of borderland of Poland, actually, named Leon Czolgosz. He is an anarchist, and he is out to kill William McKinley. He hides a pistol in a handkerchief and fires right into William McKinley's stomach. McKinley lingers for a while. The morning sun, the seventh day of September, 1901. President McKinley assassinated was the terrible news which flashed over the wires yesterday afternoon, bringing sorrow to all parts of this broad land of ours. From the Atlantic to the Pacific and from the Canadian line to the Gulf, the whole nation is waiting in greatest anxiety for news from Buffalo. Wild rumors of the death of the president go forth and the heads of all are bowed in deepest grief only to be relieved by telegraphic news of a chance for his recovery.
Theodore Roosevelt thinks that McKinley is going to pull out of it. He goes camping, exploring in the Adirondack Mountain region of upstate New York, far upstate New York. He gets the word that McKinley is dying, however, rushes back down and on his way back to Buffalo, receives word that McKinley has died. He's sworn in in Buffalo. He has a different idea of what the presidency should do. Where McKinley is the conservative, Roosevelt is chomping at the bit to get things done, to accrete more and more power to himself. But he knows he has to proceed gingerly if he wants another term. And he wants another term. Presidents before him, accidental presidents, like John Tyler and Andrew Johnson and Chester Allen Arthur and Millard Fillmore had not been able to secure a nomination on their own. Roosevelt is going to play an interesting game in the next three years. He's going to start showing his progressivism, his activism, his reform motives, but he's also going to play a careful game of not going too far to alienate the more conservative elements in the Republican Party. And his nomination in 1904 is not necessarily assured. There are really three big events in Roosevelt's first term, his rather truncated first term. There's an anthracite coal strike, which is a big deal because coal is the energy source for America at that time. I mean, kerosene and oil are gaining ground, certainly. But it's coal, which is keeping people's furnaces uh, warm in the winter and powering the trains. And if coal comes to a halt, the country could come to a halt. No one had really intervened in a labor matter, a strike like Roosevelt had before. Grover Cleveland had intervened in, a, in the famous Pullman strike in the 1890s. He would send the troops in really against the unions. Roosevelt calls in the, with no authority and very little precedent, calls in the mine operators and the unions under a guy named John Mitchell and kind of puts their heads together and exercising what could be called the bully pulpit, arranges a settlement. And this excites the imagination of the American people. It's in a way a victory for the unions. They get concessions. They had won a pay raise a year or two before, but they win, again, concessions in terms of wages and conditions. They do not, however, secure the recognition of their union. So it's sort of like a, well, it's a compromise victory. Bureau of the Democrat and Chronicle, New York, October 19th, 1902. 
Everybody feels relieved over the settlement of the coal strike. With the knowledge that relief is at hand, that loaded trains, barges, canal boats, and gondolas are moving to points of distribution, and that tomorrow, when the miners' convention votes to end the strike, there will be a general release of anthracite coal that has been held in check. New York is in a jubilant state of mind. It's like relief coming to a besieged city. There is also the... Uh trust busting begins with the Northern Securities case where he goes head to head against the big financial leader of the time, J.P. Morgan, and also Edward R. Harriman, another railroad tycoon. And this, again, is something that no one had done before. The Sherman Antitrust Act had been pretty much of a dead letter. He brings it to life. And the third thing, of course, is the Panama Canal where America had been negotiating with Colombia, which owned Panama. The negotiations break down. Theodore Roosevelt is outraged and essentially engineers a coup in Panama, which is going to lead to Panamanian independence. And with a show of American force, make sure that Colombia cannot move back into its northern province again. This is something which is going to excite the anti-imperialists in opposition, but it is going to excite the American people largely to support Roosevelt and to see America as an emerging, maybe the emerging great power in the world. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. American capitalism and big business are on the march in the latter part of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, United States Steel has been formed as a uh, essentially a monopoly, but not really uh, a monopoly because there still are competitors. There are combinations such as the Sugar Trust, which are very, very powerful and very influential in, in government. And John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company is perhaps the is really is the wealthiest of them all. It's not an oil producing company. It's an oil refining company. And they are able to either force out or buy out. They do not force out all their competitors. Standard Oil is very famous for simply buying out the competition. And in many cases, people will form companies just to be bought, bought out by them. The great monopolies often outrage the American people. Prices are believed to rise because of this, and the railroads being so central to the American economy fall into this debate very centrally. Are they giving unfair advantages to this industry or that industry, this company or corporation to affect an unfair advantage to their smaller upstart competitors? Now. Why is this significant or why do people worry about this? Because once those competitors are forced out, then prices may rise on the consumer. Now, maintaining monopolies, maintaining cartels, maintaining price fixing is a very transitory and difficult thing. Because of cutthroat competition, the competition will emerge again, even with these cartels. And if the prices are high enough, other people will see the opportunity and start to move in, often very successfully. But in terms of higher prices and what the consumer will pay, the biggest issue of all around 1900 is the tariff. This is the issue which has separated the major parties almost since the beginning of the Republic. Alexander Hamilton wants to have tariffs for the protection of infant industries. This is transferred to the Whig Party and then to the Republican Party. So that the Republican Party is always the party of the tariffs for what is termed protection, for protection of what they call the home markets, which is really the home industries. This favors not only the big guys who own these industries, and it's hard for us to believe, but for a long time, the iron manufacturing or steel is not doing particularly well against Britain. It requires some sort of protection. It is going to be provided by the tariff laws. There's a famous McKinley tariff in 1890, which really jacks up rates. 
the Democrats take it down again in the a few years later. The Republicans raise it in 1897. Theodore Roosevelt is not comfortable with the tariff. The tariff is in many ways, it's not a free market device. It is a form of crony capitalism because which industry gets the protection, how much, etc., uh, etc. Et and there can be tremendous log rolling, not only in the Congress, because, well, if you're going to raise sugar, I need your vote and I'm going to raise steel, etc., etc., etc. But also, what there might be outright bribery in this in this regard of, of Congress. So Roosevelt is not entirely comfortable with the process, but there's a famous quote by Roosevelt where he says, in economics, I am an agnostic. And what does that mean? It means he lacks certain economic philosophical principles so that for the sake of politics, he is never really going to challenge the tariff head on. And he will retain the 1897 tariff. He will not fight for tariff reform in any great meaningful sense. And that will be the issue which continues to divide the two parties. Transformative is a word that gets thrown around a lot lately, and Theodore Roosevelt really is a transformative president. Before that, he's the executive. He is the person who executes what Congress actually enacts. Very early on in his administration, he starts implementing a very activist, very different policy a very different idea of the presidency of the United States. In 1904, he's extending Civil War pensions by executive order and not relying on the Congress to do that. He's doing something very different. And could anyone else have done that? As Nixon goes to China, he's the aristocrat who takes the bull by the horns and moves forward on a more activist, populist agenda, even though he'll deny that. He's very interesting to read where he'll be attacking the reactionaries. He doesn't use that word. And he'll also be attacking the mugwumps. So he's very susceptible to criticism on the left and on the right and positions himself somewhat in the middle. But that middle is sort of like a lane of a highway, which is clear for him to go forward and at a very high rate of speed when he determines to. So, whereas a Williams Jennings Bryan never got the nod for the presidency, was just a little too much this way. And a Woodrow Wilson was a little too much the other way in terms of being too academic. Theodore Roosevelt, with this great flair for publicity and just a flair for life, is able to capture the attention of the American public and also to ride a wave which is occurring even without him.
there is that whole muckraker thing going on. There is the call for reform. There is the journalism which says we're going to attack conditions in the meat industry or the trusts or the railroads. And always there's a question of, is the person leading the parade on his own or is he jumping to the head of it and saying, I am the leader? We never quite know the answer to that. But in Theodore Roosevelt, there is certainly a great confluence of those two concepts. Theodore Roosevelt courts the media and courts them incredibly successfully. He does this as no president has done this before. One of the journalists who is not enamored of Theodore Roosevelt is a fellow named Oswald Garrison Villard. He runs the New York Post and he runs The Nation magazine. At one time they were connected. He talks about how Roosevelt really corrupts the media by his charm, by taking them into his confidence. And he narrates a story about going to the press one day and saying, here is a statement about what this administration is doing and what I'm saying, and you will print that. And here is my denial of what I just gave you, and you will print that the next day. And in fact, they did that. So he had them, a large part of them, wrapped around his little finger. One of his secretaries, he will be the second secretary to the president, a guy named William Loeb Jr., who he carries with him from Albany uh, when he was governor, is sort of acknowledged to be the first unofficial press secretary. You know, no president had this before. They may have had political machines of one sort or another, but they had not really courted the press as Theodore Roosevelt does. And he's, he's really good at it. And of course, he's a man of the press. He's a man of letters. He writes for newspapers. Late in his career, he writes a regular newspaper column for the Kansas City Star, which is syndicated to papers around the country. Before that, he's an editor of a magazine. So he is both the object of press attention and a member of the press itself. In 1904, the conservatives in the Republican Party may still challenge Theodore Roosevelt for the nomination. Their candidate would be Senator Mark Hanna. Mark Hanna had been the mentor, the great guiding hand behind or alongside William McKinley. In 1900, he's opposed to Theodore Roosevelt's nomination for the vice presidency. He calls him a, a damn cowboy, essentially a madman, and, and says that only a bullet stands between the presidency of the United States and, and, and that madman, Theodore Roosevelt. And he's precisely right about that. It's the bullet fired by Leon Cholgosh, which makes Theodore Roosevelt president of the United States. Nonetheless, Roosevelt and Hannah, during Roosevelt's uh, first term as president, maintain an uneasy alliance. But as the election draws nearer, Roosevelt is maneuvering more and more to cement his support within the Republican Party. And Hannah, more and more, as 1903 turns into 1904, there are more rumbles that he may take it to TR for the nomination, which is not a, a far-fetched idea. But what happens early in, in the year 
is that Marcus Alonzo Hanna takes sick of typhoid fever and dies very quickly. And suddenly the path is cleared very, very widely for Theodore Roosevelt to secure the nomination. The Democrats are an even more divided party. They had been the conservative party in the 19th century, culminating in the presidency of Grover Cleveland. But in 1896, following the, the business panic of 1893, the Democratic Party just explodes. There are also issues of prairie populism and free coinage of silver versus gold. But the party, which had been so conservative under Cleveland, jettisons all his ideas and turns willy-nilly to William Jennings Bryan, and it becomes a more radical party. Bryan has run in 1896 and 1900 and has lost both times. Meanwhile, the more conservative Democrats, who are not necessarily all Southerners, they are more so Northeasterners and more so New Yorkers, want their party back. The problem is, who is their candidate going to be? They don't want Brian. They certainly don't want another radical who is actively running that year. His name is William Randolph Hearst, who is a one-term congressman from New York City at that point, as well as being a great publishing baron, one of the practitioners of the yellow press. But they will eventually turn to the Chief Justice of the New York State Court of Appeals, the state's highest court, a fellow named Alton B. Parker. Parker is kind of a safe candidate because he's been on the bench and hasn't been able to speak out on all the issues dividing the Democratic Party. But safe candidates can be boring candidates, uh, can be not very good candidates. And Parker turns out to be not a very good candidate. And Roosevelt wins one of the great landslides in terms of percentage of the vote in American history in 1904. But it has its side to it, which is not so convincing. One, the popular vote in total has gone down since 1900. And also, the Democratic vote has gone down by like 1.4 million people. Evidently, the Bryan people... The radicals in the party simply stay home, which inflates Roosevelt's percentage of the vote. He's still wildly popular, but he may not be as popular as he thinks he is. And one of the main salient points of what happens in the election is this. On election night, Theodore Roosevelt makes a pledge, which his wife soon says to him, Theodore, you shouldn't have done that. And what he does is he says, I will not seek another term in 1908. There was an anti-third term tradition in American history, starting with George Washington. Technically, this would not be a full third term for Roosevelt, but it would be, as they say, close enough for government work. But what he does by saying that at the onset of his first full term is to make himself an instant lame duck. And this is going to embolden the conservatives in Congress against him and really weaken his ability to 
maintain control of the political agenda, even though he's going to do his best and will continue to be a very, very activist president in his second term. There's a book about Theodore Roosevelt and his friends called The War Lovers. And Theodore Roosevelt loves combat and often wanted to get the United States into a war. So it's extremely ironic that he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. He wins the Nobel Peace Prize because his administration has engaged in some diplomacy to bring two warring nations together. In early 1904, war had broken out between two empires, the Russian Empire under the Tsar and the Japanese Imperial Empire in Tokyo. Much like Pearl Harbor, the Japanese attack first and attack without warning. And generally it's thought that any European power can beat any non-white power, but this isn't quite true, as the British had found out in Afghanistan uh, in the middle of the 19th century repeatedly. And the Russians are going to find this out in 1904 and 1905. But uh, Japan is still in many ways a primitive economy. Uh, so these nations are kind of fighting their way to exhaustion. Uh, Roosevelt provides a way for peace to be brokered and he gets the representatives of the Russian and Japanese governments to Portsmouth, New Hampshire and they slog things out, peace results and Theodore Roosevelt not only is the great warrior president, the great rough rider, but he's a great peacemaker uh, president. But conversely, He's also going to show American power. There is his famous dictum, speak softly and carry a big stick. His big stick in the second term is going to be something called the Great White Fleet. Where being the former Secretary of the Navy, he's going to be very much influenced by theories of global naval power. And he sends the American fleet around the world to show the flag, to show the big 16-inch guns of, of our battleships, our dreadnoughts, and to let the world know that the American military is open for business. Being a lame duck president, Theodore Roosevelt, and being an activist president, is going to want to cement his legacy and his power uh, in regard to who his successor is going to be. In 1904, the conservative elements of the party had named uh, Senator Charles Fairbanks, known as the Indiana Icicle, as his vice presidential running mate. And Fairbanks had gone out and done all the vice presidential campaigning that uh, candidates of that nature would do back then. But he and Roosevelt never really quite hit it off. Fairbanks was a conservative after all. And Roosevelt has his own circle of friends. Henry Cabot Lodge, the senator from Massachusetts, is really one of his top friends. And Leonard Wood, a general who had served with him in the Rough Riders. Ella Hugh Root, who had been his secretary of war and secretary of state, had been maybe Roosevelt's first choice to succeed him. Root is a very capable guy, but he has a couple of problems 
One, he had been a Wall Street lawyer, and Wall Street was just uh, as poison in terms of, of electoral strategies back in uh, the early 1900s as it is today. So that's one knock against him. And also, Root is actually more conservative than Roosevelt. Uh, a little too conservative, probably, for the times. So Roosevelt is going to turn to someone who is another close ally of his, uh, who had been governor general of the Philippines, the occupied Philippine territory, Commonwealth, and also his secretary of war. And that's William Howard Taft. Taft doesn't want to be president. His wife wants him to be president. Taft wants to be on the Supreme Court of the United States. But um, settling for the presidency of the United States is not a bad consolation prize. And who does Taft get to run against in 1908? None other than William Jennings Bryan returning to favor in the Democratic Party as the Democratic Party shifts away from the right and again back to the left. Taft does very well in that race. It's also a race that sees the Socialist Party, Eugene V. Debs, as its candidate, do very well that year. But nonetheless, the Republicans retain power, and Theodore Roosevelt is almost going to slink away into the sunset, except he does that in a very spectacular way, almost before Taft is settled into his presidency in March 1909, Roosevelt is setting off for yet another great adventure. He's going to go to Africa. Take me out to the ball game, sung by Edward Meeker, Edison Record. sorts of specimens for natural history museums and he's gone he's gone for over a year this is quite remarkable and there's no internet back then there's barely a telegraph in met for a long period of time he's out of communication with the western world he returns 
to civilization, as they say, going up in through Egypt and then arrives in Europe. And he is received, shall we say, royally by all the royal houses of Europe in Austria-Hungary, in Berlin with Kaiser Wilhelm. This is the time when Edward VII of England dies, and he represents America, marching along with all the crowned heads of Europe in that uh, elaborate sunset of the old order. But while he's in Europe, he receives word that things are not exactly wonderful back stateside. Fort Smith Times, August 24, 1900-08. Special to the Times. Washington, August 24. Interest in the coming National Convention of the Conservation Commission, of which Gifford Pinchot is chairman, and the National Rivers and Harbors Congress, of which Honorable Joseph E. Ransdell of Louisiana is president, is largely on the increase, as is shown by the discussions throughout the country during the past few weeks. The meetings of these two great bodies in December next give promise of being most largely attended by the representative men of the nation interested in the conservation of our natural resources and in waterway improvements. The Taft administration is disappointing Roosevelt and disappointing Roosevelt's friends. Taft has gotten into arguments over forestry and conservation with a very close Roosevelt friend and ally, a fellow named Gifford Pinchot. He is busting trusts, but he's busting the wrong trusts. He busts United States Steel, and Theodore Roosevelt regards this as a personal affront to his behavior toward United States Steel uh, in his administration. And Taft has promised to keep certain people on in his administration and broke that pledge very early on. Roosevelt is becoming more radical. He had had the square deal, which was a moderately reformist agenda while president. But from 1910 on, and he gives a speech in uh, Pottawatomie, Kansas, which unveils something called the new nationalism. And it is really as radical as anything Brian would do, almost as radical as what the socialists would do. And he is at odds with Taft, who's becoming more conservative. And one of the things which they also disagree on is judicial review. The judiciary was more conservative than Taft believes in a checks and balance system in America. Roosevelt wants to knock the pegs out from judicial independence and it gets really ugly. They are going to face off in 1912. Taft will win a couple of the early primaries. Then Roosevelt will get going and sweep the rest of them. He regards himself as the people's choice, but he is not the delegate's choice. He had helped set up a system in 1904 to secure the nomination. And now Taft is using that same system of delegates, particularly Southern delegates, against him. TR is going to cry foul, unfair, challenge about, oh, four score delegates at the uh, Republican convention of 1912, which is a number largely pulled out of a hat. The system is honest, but TR cries foul nonetheless. And when Taft is nominated, his people walk out 
He walks out and they form a new party called the Progressive Party, popularly known as the Bull Moose Party. And they are going to run in the general election, not so much for the presidency, but to punish William Howard Taft and the so-called regular Stand Pat Republicans. In Milwaukee in 1912, Theodore Roosevelt is campaigning for his Bull Moose Party. He leaves a hotel there, and on the sidewalk outside, a man comes up to him, much like a man came up to William McKinley in 1900, pulls out a revolver and shoots T.R. not in the stomach, but in the chest. T.R. has in his inside breast pocket of his coat a rolled up speech, which is a hell of a long speech. It is folded over, and also inside his coat is a pair of glasses and a metal eyeglass case. And the paperwork, the glasses, the case, keep the bullet barely from going into TR's heart and instantly killing him. TR had recalled at this instant being a clear-thinking person, something he had heard during the Spanish-American War. If you're shot in the chest, and if you're not coughing up blood, you're probably not in too bad a shape. So what he does is he tells his campaign entourage to drive on to the hall where he is going to address his supporters. He stands before them with his shirt covered with blood and says, I've just been shot, but I'm going to continue on with this speech anyway. The great fundamental issue now before our people can be thinking it is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the plain people of the United States will, day in and day out, make fewer mistakes in governing themselves than any smaller class or body of men, no matter what their training, will make in trying to govern them. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Our opponents pay lip loyalty to this doctrine, but they show their real beliefs by the way in which they champion every device to make the nominal rule of the people a sham. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. I prefer to work with moderate, with rational conservatives, provided only that they do in good faith strive forward towards the light. But when they halt and turn their backs to the light, sit with the scorners on the seats of reaction, then I must part company with them. We, the people, cannot turn back. Our aim must be steady, wise progress. It would be well if our people would study the history of a sister republic. All the woes of France for a century and a quarter have been due to the folly of her people in splitting into the two camps of unreasonable conservatism and unreasonable radicalism. Had pre-revolutionary France listened to men like Turgot and backed them up, all would have gone well. But the beneficiaries of privilege, the Bourbon reactionaries, the short-sighted ultra-conservatives turned down Turgot and then found that instead of him they had obtained Robespierre. They gained 20 years freedom from all restraint and reform at the cost of the whirlwind of the Red Terror, 
and in their turn the unbridled extremists of the terror induced a blind reaction. And so with convulsion and oscillation from one extreme to another, with alternations of violent radicalism and violent bourbonism, the French people went through misery toward a shattered goal. May we profit by the experiences of our brother Republicans across the water and go forward steadily avoiding all wild extremes. And may our ultra-conservatives remember that the rule of the Bourbons brought on the revolution. And may our would-be revolutionaries remember that no Bourbon was ever such a dangerous enemy of the people and of freedom as the professed friend of both Robespierre. There is no danger of a revolution in this country. But there is grave discontent and unrest, and in order to remove them, there is need of all the wisdom and probity and deep-seated faith in and purpose to uplift humanity we have at our command. Friends, our task as Americans is to strive for social and industrial justice achieved through the genuine rule of the people. This is our end, our purpose. The methods for achieving the end are merely expedients to be finally accepted or rejected according as actual experience shows that they work well or ill. But in our hearts we must have this lofty purpose to strive for it in all earnestness and sincerity for our work will come to nothing. In order to succeed, we need leaders of inspired idealism, leaders to whom are granted great visions, who dream greatly and strive to make their dreams come true, who can kindle the people with the fire from their own burning souls. The leader for the time being, whoever he may be, is but an instrument to be used until broken and then to be cast aside. And if he is worth his salt, he will care no more when he is broken than a soldier cares when he is sent where his life is profit in order that the victory may be won. He speaks for over an hour with a bullet in his chest. He is taken to the hospital. He is correct that he is not in that bad a shape despite having this bullet in him, but he's going to be knocked out of action for the rest of the campaign. And this will lead to the election of Democrat Woodrow Wilson, formerly president of Princeton University, one of the foremost political scientists in the infant political science industry in America at this time. And at that time, the Democratic governor of New Jersey. In the three-way race, Wilson is not going to overwhelm the Republicans. He's only going to get 43% of the vote. He's going to get less of a vote than Bryan had gotten. But with the Republicans so badly splintered, he will be president of the United States of America. And TR will again go off on a foreign adventure. In South America, there was one particularly vast, unexplored region of the Amazon. It was called the River of Doubt. And Theodore Roosevelt was going to go off and explore it. And this is, even for a younger man, and T.R. is certainly not young at this point. He's not aged, but he's past the 50 mark. He tends to get a little overweight. He's explored the strenuous life. He's boxed and been a cowboy and done all sorts of things. But this is a foolhardy mission for even a younger man who has not been president of the United States of America. He goes off. The expedition barely survives. He barely survives. 
He comes down with jungle fever. He is amazingly sick. At one point, he turns to his son, Kermit, and says he is going to take morphine and end it all. So he is not a burden to the remaining members of this expedition. Kermit looks him in the eye and says, you may do what you wish, but dead or alive, we are bringing your body back to America. So it will be much easier for us if you are alive. And that snaps TR out of it. And they do bring him back. But he is a very sick man, comes back to America, recovers, and has to figure out how to remain a central figure in American politics. Now, he's still writing at this point. He's writing books. He's written a big bestseller on his African expedition. He's written an autobiography and he writes newspaper columns and magazine articles. He's really the most prolific writer of any American president and prolific by any standards. But his political career is, shall we say, in the dumpster. Democrats have no use for him, never really have. The Republicans, the stand-pat conservative Republicans who now have regained control of the party or really strengthened their control of the party are quite bitter against him. You know, there's no war like a civil war. And so the personalities become inflamed, the hatreds, hatreds become exacerbated. And Theodore Roosevelt is not going to easily sneak back into the good graces of the party who he had damn near wrecked in 1910 and 1912. But what intervenes is not just a civil war, but a world war. World War I erupts in 1914, August of that year. And Theodore Roosevelt at first isn't quite sure what to make of it. His early statements about Germany's uh, invasion of Belgium are extremely Wilson-like, extremely pro-neutrality. But the more he thinks about it, and it doesn't take much more thinking about it, he's chomping at the bit to become involved in World War I. He can't say it immediately. But what he can say is that America should be prepared for war, which it is not. It may have a decent Navy, but its army is, oh, I think it's worse than uh, or smaller in scale than uh, Chile's, Chile's. So America is not prepared. And also when Germany starts sinking British vessels with Americans on board, particularly the Lusitania, Roosevelt is going to be outraged, and he may be even more outraged by Woodrow Wilson's response to Germany. Wilson knows he has to do something about this, but how far can he go? And how far do the American people want him to go? We've had the tradition of staying away from European affairs ever since George Washington. There are large groups of Americans who are isolationist, either just because they are, or because they are German Americans who have sympathy for their old homeland, or Irish Americans who have antipathy to their British masters. Remember, Ireland is still under British rule at that point. Or Jewish Americans. Jewish Americans who would be extremely resentful of going and taking the side of one of the allies, one of the anti-German powers, Tsarist Russia, which is the foremost anti-Semitic country 
in the world, spectacularly so. So there are a lot of people who do not wish to go to war and do not wish to go to war over, shall we say, smaller issues as to say who can travel on a belligerent passenger liner in a war zone in a very hot world war. So Theodore Roosevelt is going to continue to work more and more preparedness. And as he does so, there's another presidential election coming up. That is in 1916, of course. And his progressive followers want to nominate him again. There's hope that the Republicans will nominate him as well, that the two parties will reunite. But Theodore Roosevelt kind of knows better. He knows in what ill graces he remains within the Republican inner circles. And at the end of the day, Republicans nominate another judge. Not that they have nominated a judge, but the Democrats had nominated Alton B. Parker in 1904. The charm of these judges is that they have been off the bench. They have not been involved in these issues tearing the parties apart. Charles Evans Hughes has been on the bench since Taft appointed him, and he's not taken part in any of these bull moose, stand pat battles. But like Alton B. Parker in 1904, he turns out to be a really bad candidate. And he's also running against Woodrow Wilson, who is pretty cagey in his own way, but has the advantage of running at a time of peace and prosperity. We're not fighting. Our boys are not being killed. And the prosperity is going through the roof in America because America can sell all kinds of stuff to the Western allies, to France and England and, and to Russia and to Italy. So America is doing very well. Nonetheless, it's going to be a real nail-biting election. Theodore Roosevelt will take the stump, but he is an issue in that campaign, maybe more than Charles Evans Hughes is. And he's a lightning rod where people fear he will influence Hughes to get us into war. And this will cost Hughes German votes and Irish votes and Midwest votes. And at the end of the day, Woodrow Wilson is elected. And even though Woodrow Wilson has campaigned on the slogan, he kept us out of war, he's going to be sworn in for a second term in March 1917. In early April, he's going to go before the Congress of the United States of America and demand that we declare war on Imperial Germany. Why? What's changed? One, Germany, which had introduced a moratorium on submarine warfare during the 1916 campaign, and this is one of the things which helps Wilson get reelected, says, no, we're going to start sinking all sorts of British ships and we don't care how many Americans are on them. This outrages the American public. And perhaps even more spectacularly, Germany, the German Foreign Office, has sent a telegram, incredibly ill-advised, downright stupid, to the government of Mexico, saying, if there is war between the United States and Germany, if the United States declares war on Germany, why don't you Mexicans come into this war and we'll give you the American Southwest back? 
And there's also fears of, among America that say Japan might switch sides and, and attack the Pacific coast. There's a great deal of paranoia at this time about Mexico and about Japan. Japan well, famously was called Yellow Peril. Now, in regards to Mexico, we had recently been involved in really a border war. Woodrow Wilson had blundered into uh, a war which started when Pancho Villa attacks Americans at Columbus, New Mexico, and Black Jack Pershing leads an American expeditionary force into Mexico. So the idea of Mexico being a threat on our southern border is not far-fetched to Americans at that time. And when Germany sends that telegram to the Mexican government called the Zimmerman telegram, it ignites a powder keg. song in World War One for Americans is over there. And Theodore Roosevelt wants to go over there. He wants to recreate his Rough Rider days. He's older. The world has changed. War has changed. He's gone to the Amazon and come back a, a sick man. But he wants to go over and lead a volunteer force in France, a cavalry regiment on the Western Front, where there are no cavalry charges. He would also be a very difficult subordinate for any general or president of the United States to control. William Howard Taft certainly found that out uh, uh, during his administration. So Theodore Roosevelt applies to the Secretary of War, Newton D. Baker, to be allowed to lead this American force. He's turned down. He shows up at the White House unannounced and pleads before Woodrow Wilson for this honor. Woodrow Wilson turns him down. Later on, and the story is told in a number of different ways, Roosevelt says, all I was asking was for permission to die. And whoever he says this to responds, but did you make that clear to Woodrow Wilson? Meaning Woodrow Wilson would have been very glad to have his old adversary six feet under. But Roosevelt doesn't get his chance. He goes off, raises a lot of money for the war effort with fund drives for the Liberty Loan, raising millions and millions of dollars. He has a large family. He has four sons, and they're all going to go over seas to fight for the Allies. Kermit, who had accompanied him to the Amazon and to Africa, goes off and joins British forces. He fights in Mesopotamia. While he's over there, he meets Lawrence of Arabia. Then eventually he ends up with the American forces in, in France. Theodore Roosevelt Jr. is an officer with the American Expeditionary Force. He's fairly seriously wounded and gassed in France. He's an excellent officer. Quinton is the youngest son. He will join the Army Air Force. And Archie is very seriously wounded in France. He is granted a 100% percent 
disability uh, in terms of, of war pensions and, and veterans benefits. He's really banged up pretty heavily. Quinton Roosevelt in that Army Air Corps, this is a very dangerous game for anyone to be playing. The life expectancy of any pilot uh, for any force at that time is in weeks. This danger will present itself to Quinton on only his second really aerial combat on Bastille Day, 1918. He goes up, he meets German fighter planes and a German machine gun bullet goes right into his forehead and kills him instantly. Word comes back to Oyster Bay that Quentin's plane has gone down. No one is quite sure if he has survived or not. A few days later, the Roosevelts get the word. Roosevelt is due the next day to go up to Saratoga Springs, New York, to address the Republican Convention of the state of New York, and duty calls once again for him. They want him to be governor of New York, oddly enough, the Republicans at that point. He's not going to do that. He says he has only one great fight left in him, and it's not this. And goes into that hall and brings everyone to tears as they know the grief he is has on the inside. And it really destroys a lot of the fight that Theodore Roosevelt has in him. 1918 is a year not only of heartache for him, but also sickness. In February 1918, he's suffering from the jungle fever he had contracted in the Amazon. He's taken to Roosevelt Hospital in New York City and spends a month there. While he's there, his ears are operated on. He loses the hearing in one ear. He loses his sense of balance. When he comes out, he essentially has to learn how to walk again. Just after Election Day 1918, he goes into the hospital again and stays there until just before Christmas. He leaves so he can spend Christmas with his family. Eventually, they all depart. He is still a very, very sick man. He goes to bed on the night of January 5th, 1919, says to his valet, turn off the lights. The valet hears some strange noises during the night. His breathing is irregular, Roosevelt's. And then it stops. Theodore Roosevelt has died in his sleep. Woodrow Wilson's vice president, Thomas Marshall, said death had to take him in his sleep. There would have been too much of a fight if he was awake. Archie Roosevelt, who is now stateside from all his wounds and had been rushing on a train to Boston, where his father-in-law was dying, has to reverse course and come back to Oyster Bay. He telegraphs Colonel's remaining two sons who are serving in the occupation army in Germany. The old lion is dead. The old lion was dead, but his reputation as a great American president really only increases at that point. Star Gazette, Elmira, New York, 6 January 1919, Monday. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt is dead. N comes peacefully while sleeping rheumatism and son's death causes. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, former president of the United States, died in his sleep early today at his home on Sagamore Hill in this village. Recently returned home from hospital, and he was believed to be improving in health. Death is believed to have been due to rheumatism, which affected his heart. 
It's said that had he lived, he would have been the Republican nominee in 1920. And that being a Republican year, he would have been president of the United States. He would have mounted the most amazing comeback in American history. Now, he had done so because Americans not only were savoring his progressive ideals, but more to the point, Theodore Roosevelt had been right about the preparedness issue. America was woefully unprepared for war. When American pilots like his son Quentin went into the skies to fight the Germans, they went in in French manufactured planes. We were not prepared. And Americans knew that. They had suffered a lot of casualties, probably unnecessarily. And they looked upon him as the fellow who should have been leading us in World War I. And now he was gone. By being on Mount Rushmore, he is literally an iconic American president. And it usually takes a while for saints to be canonized in the Roman Catholic Church. And it takes a while for presidents to emerge as as these icons. The other three figures on Mount Rushmore are Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln. They've been gone a long time at this point. Theodore Roosevelt had not been gone for eight years, but he has an ace in the hole here. The fellow sculpting Mount Rushmore is one of his biggest fans. Uh, Gutson Borglum had been an official of the Connecticut Progressive Bull Moose Party. He had been a delegate for Theodore Roosevelt. And when Theodore Roosevelt dies, he wants to construct a massive equestrian statue of Theodore Roosevelt on the Palisades overlooking New York City. He doesn't do that, but he does construct Mount Rushmore. Now, Borglum illustrates one of the problems with the progressive movement. It's not always what we would call progressive. So in the teens, Gutzum Borglund is banging the drums for Theodore Roosevelt. In the 20s, he's banging the drums for the Ku Klux Klan. He's not just a marginal member. He's not someone we associate with maybe he joined. No, he did join and he was on the highest councils of the Klan. So progressivism can be workers' conditions or progressive tax rates, but it can also be a warlike spirit and a march towards eugenics or Jim Crow. Uh, and in Guts and Borglum, it's a really heavy mix-up of things which are regarded to be positive and things which are universally de- derided now to be negative. Theodore Roosevelt's been gone for a hundred years just about now. And the presidency which he made into the overarching, biggest, grandest portion of the American government remains pretty much as he determined it would be. 
when he was an assemblyman in the state of New York, when he was a governor. He thought that the power of the executive to be a bully pulpit and to do more uh, than the founders had in mind was his goal. And he largely achieved that in terms of creating the modern American presidency. So if we take a look at what he actually accomplished as president, um, they're not necessarily the biggest things. He doesn't have a great New Deal or even a Wilsonian New Freedom or a Johnsonian Great Society. It's kind of small potato stuff compared to that. But in terms of creating the structure and giving the push for this bigger and grander American presidency and executive power and less of American federalism, that's TR to AT and NR. When I was a lad, Theodore Roosevelt was my favorite president. He is the hero, I think, of all boyish dreams of being able to do everything. I remember a great cartoon Uh, maybe on his passing, which was uh, in his life, quoting Shakespeare, in his life, a man plays many parts. And certainly T.R. played more parts than I think any other American. Writer, statesman, peacemaker, soldier, explorer, writer, reformer, all of those things. Nobody else really combines all that in one person. But as as I grow older... And I judge that the weakest part of TR is, in fact, his grasp of what government and the federal system should be, that, in fact, it has gone too far and that the beauty of the American system is this system of checks and balances and that in this TR was long-term, actually quite destructive to the system which gave birth to him. So my early judgment was, yay, TR. And my later judgment for several decades now has been far less so. So you assigned him the start of the imperial presidency. He really is. He really is the uh, start of of all that. And it's far less imperial than it is now, whether it's under... It's been moving that way for a very long time. But, um, yes, yes. David, before we go, we have to ask you, what what have you been up to recently? What books do you have in the pipeline? Go, sir. Tell us. By a strange coincidence, my next book will be on Theodore Roosevelt. (laughs) And uh, it is going to be called T.R.'s Last War, the subtitle being Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. It really picks up after his adventures or misadventures in the Amazon, where he tries to put his political career back together again in America, and perhaps more so where he is urging quite strenuously American preparedness for the war, lashing out, as they say, at Woodrow Wilson. He really hates Woodrow Wilson more than he has hated anyone um, on earth. And then what happens when T.R. gets his war, 
it's a classic case of be careful what you wish for, because he does not get his wish to go and fight in that war. His sons go off to fight and with a terrible toll. And then we look at um, really the tragedy of his life at that point, where he should be ascending to the presidency again, but like Moses uh, marching towards the promised land, he's not going to make that trip. Um, and uh, so it's it's a very different look at Theodore Roosevelt. And I, I think what happens with a lot of his chroniclers and biographies, biographers, that he is such an exhausting subject that by the time they reach this stage of his life, they are exhausted and sort of rush through it. And there are many, many interesting, fascinating, significant aspects to this stage of his life that one should not rush through them. One should look at them. And I think I've come up with some things which are going to surprise a lot of people. Well, we'll look forward to that. What's the book going to be called? TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. Well, we'll look out for that on Amazon and all good bookshops. I need to remind you that we are part of the Agora Podcast Network. It's a network of some 25 independently produced podcasts. So why don't you go to agorapodcastnetwork.com and um, go and search out a brand new podcast for your podcasting ears. This month, our podcast of the month is Beyond the Big Screen by Stephen Guerra. So if you want to know the true stories behind your favourite movies, the real facts and the background are often much more interesting and complex than you might think. Um, Stephen interviews people who are incredibly passionate about a specific film or a genre. They are great interviews, so why don't you take a listen to Behind the Big Screen on a podcatcher of your choice. Thank you, David, and uh, thank you, listener. You, of course, you can catch up with the progress of 10 American presidents by going on to Twitter, where we are 10USP. Um, also, there is a website, which is 10USP. That's the number 1010USP.com. Um, just whilst we have you, David, why don't you give us uh, all your online web details? www.davidpetrusha, D-A-V-I-D. That's the easy part. P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. That's the Polish part. Dot com. And then and on Twitter, D-P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A. And that's about it. No Facebook for me. <laughs> we'll see you all again soon, listener, for another uh, look at one of America's transformative and extraordinary presidents. Bye-bye. Done it. Okay. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.